0: If you guys have been participating in our worship gatherings online uh, through YouTube or listening to the podcast, you know that we're in the midst of a series entitled Counterculture Kingdom, how the gospel changes everything. You also know that the series is rooted in Matthew chapter 5, where we encounter the Beatitudes, which are the opening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, these short statements that we encounter in the Beatitudes are the primary values or ethics, if you want to use that word, of Jesus' kingdom. See, in Matthew's gospel, we learn that Jesus is king. That's Matthew's aim. Each gospel writer writes with a different focus. Matthew wants us to see in no uncertain terms that Jesus is king. He's our rightful king, meaning he's my creator. He gave me life and he sustains my life. My heart does not beat apart from his will that it keep on beating. Like Jesus created me and sustains my life. He is my king. So the height of my rebellion was that I would live or try to live autonomously from Jesus or out from underneath his kind, kingly rule. He is our rightful king. Contrary to Western ethic, we are not our own kings. Jesus is also our promised rescuing king, not just rightful king. At his advent, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom here on earth. Jesus planted his flag in the heart, Uh, not this flag, just in case you grew up in churches like I did, not the flag on the right, or is that Texas? I know that's very often confused with Christendom, but not that flag either, and if we're just going to start picking at the idols of the church, it's also not the flag on the left. But that aside... Um, not that flag, but Jesus planted the, uh, the flag of his kingdom in the heart of the kingdom of darkness. And he began rescuing rebels one at a time. Now, let's just be honest. It's not like, all of us sitting in here are victims of the kingdom of darkness. We were citizens of the kingdom of darkness, uh, taxpaying citizens, fully participating in the systemic rebellion against our creator. Um, Certainly we were victimized by it as well, but we were also complicit in that rebellion. So Jesus wasn't just rescuing and restoring victims of the rebellion. Jesus was rescuing and restoring active participation or active participants in that rebellion, namely you and me. No one deserves the rescue. Uh, The kingdom of God does not exist for good people. It exists for broken people who have rebelled and need redemption. And Jesus gives rescue rebels new life. He gives them new standing with God, right? We go from enemies of God to sons and daughters adopted in by grace. He gives us a new heart, a new heart with new allegiances Uh, new affections. We actually desire to submit to Jesus, whereas before we would have no desire to submit to Him as King. He gives us new values. He gives us new reasons for living. He gives us new purpose. All I'm getting at is the gospel actually does change everything. So the Beatitudes serve as Jesus' inaugural address, and in His inaugural address we begin to get a sense of just how countercultural Jesus' kingdom really is, how the gospel changes everything. Look, we're only two kingdom values deep, if you will, into Jesus' list. But already we've seen these two statements. Here was the first primary value. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Contrary to our cultural values, Jesus does not say, blessed are the self-made or self-sufficient or the strong or the self-satisfied. Jesus says, blessed are those who need, blessed are those who see their need, blessed are those who confess their need, who agree with Jesus that they are needy, and blessed are those who satisfy that need in Jesus. That was the first primary value. Second one last week was this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, simply meaning blessed are those who have the eyes to see the the wrong within them, the sin, the brokenness, the rebellion within them, but not just within them. We mourn that, but the, the wrong around us, the brokenness of the rebellion around us, we mourn those broken things. And we also learn slowly to mourn those acts of rebellion or systemic broken pieces in our culture or our families or our churches that we share in, that we may be complicit in without even knowing it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We learned that the valley of tears is our daily path to the summit of joy in Jesus' counterculture kingdom. This week we focus in on his third primary value. We heard it read just a few moments ago. It was in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek blessed are the meek. So here's how we'll approach that statement this week. We're going to look at meekness in words. What does it mean? Like definition, let's just think about meekness. And then we will consider meekness in life. We will look at two very specific examples of meekness as we see it in scripture, one man and one woman. And then we will consider as we wrap up meekness in my place, meekness in my place. So meekness in words, meekness in life, and meekness in my place. And here's our summary sentence. Weak and pitiful according to our culture. Meekness is wise and powerful according to our king. Okay, weak and pitiful according to our culture. Meekness is wise and powerful according to our king. So let's take a moment and look at meekness in words. Uh, For those of you who've studied some philosophy, you probably already know that many ancient philosophers would not, would not, List meekness among the virtues. It was not considered a virtue. In fact, it was considered a defect in personhood or personality. It was considered a profound weakness. Uh, Nietzsche dismissed Christianity as a weak, repressive religion. Here's what he said. Unbecoming of any man who wishes to truly say yes to life. Meekness was a defect. In fact, he would, he would kind of go on to say, of course, Christians would list meekness as a virtue. It's kind of they're out for being meeky, toasty, passive, weak people. It's a virtue. Nothing's really changed since then. A guy named Brett McKay a couple, a couple years ago wrote an article entitled, Is Christianity an Inherently Feminine Religion?, In the article, he said, Christianity, uh, speaking to men, said, Christianity might make you a good man, but it won't make you good at being a man. Why? Meekness. That's what he's getting at. Guys, from the ancient philosophers to today, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Don't be deceived. Our culture views meekness in the same light that I just described. You don't have to take my word for it. You can check it out. Google uh, top results include this idea, easily imposed on. And here's the sentence used, right, to illustrate the word. She brought her meek little husband along. That's what meek means. Vocabulary.com defines it as one who is willing to go along with whatever other people want to do. Dictionary.com gives some cinnamons. Yes, I like cinnamon, but it gives synonyms. The synonyms are spiritless, no spirit, and tame, just tame. Meekness is to be tamed. Guys, our king, however, lists meekness at the top of his list for his kingdom's primary values. It's number three. He says, people who are meek are blessed. I approve of them. And what is weak and pitiful according to our culture is wise and powerful according to me and in my kingdom. It is a primary ethic. So let's consider some biblical usage and themes now that we've browsed the internet. In the Greek, the word that we have for meek simply means gentle, humble, and or considerate, and kind of a combination of those words, gentle, humble, and considerate. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined meekness this way. He said, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct towards others. Meekness is a true view of myself. We could say it this way, the person who is truly meek is the person who is amazed daily at how kind God is toward them in spite of their rebellion and in spite of their many remaining rebel tendencies. Guys, the seeds of meekness take root and grow in the soil of daily gospel rehearsal and nowhere else. So Jesus has to be our starting point for any discussion on meekness. He is described throughout the Bible as the meek king. So he is meekness incarnate. He is meekness in human form. Here's what one of the prophets from old, Zechariah, said. He said, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, same word for meek, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Look, if anyone deserved to be served, it was our king. It was our creator. It was Jesus himself. But he didn't come to be served. He came to serve, he came in meekness and humility. And I love that it points out the fact that he came on a donkey. That's the author saying that Jesus is a king who was inaugurated and deserved to roll up in his entourage of up-armored escalades, but instead, he rolled in in his oaky car. Right? That's what it says. That's what it means. Like, he came to work. He came, the ride he came, the ride he chose for his inauguration screamed about who he was as king. He was a meek servant king who would rescue people through his own work and sacrifice. The car screamed, the donkey screamed meekness. Jesus looks rescued rebels in the eyes and he says to us, I want you to learn from me. We know that's what disciple means, right? When we use the word disciple, it means learner, one who is a lifelong learner of Jesus. And so he looks rescued rebels in the, rebels in the eyes, and he says, I want you to learn from me. Do you know what he wants us to learn? This is Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where Jesus says, learn from me, for I am gentle, I'm meek, and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I want you to learn that. If you're going to be my disciple, I want you to learn gentleness. I want you to learn meekness. I want you to learn lowness for yourself. Augustine said it this way. He said, Jesus doesn't bid us learn of him to work miracles and to open the eyes of the blind or to raise the dead, but he would have us learn of him to be meek. Guys, too many of us in mainstream evangelicalism growing up or just cultural Christianity have learned that we need, we need to be world changers, like the weight of changing the world rests on our shoulders. But in order to change the world, Jesus says, we don't need to do big things. We don't need to be miracle workers. He didn't teach us how to do miracles. He didn't teach us those kinds of things. Jesus says, no, I'm, I am the hero of the family. I am the world changer. I rescue, I redeem, I restore. And you know how I do that? I do all of that through meek people. I want you to learn to be meek. To be meek. Family, be, like, be a meek family be meek. So what quality do you suppose qualifies somebody to lead in Jesus' kingdom? Meekness, among others, but meekness is a primary uh, qualification. We see this in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3, where it describes the qualification of pastors, elders. Pastors are to be violent. I mean, whoa, yeah. And some churches, but don't go to those churches. Pastors are not violent. Told you I was seeing a counselor but gentle. Pastors are to be meek, not quarrelsome. And then here in 2 Timothy 2.25, any leader in God's family, uh, the language Paul uses there is a servant of Christ. When correcting his opponents should always do so with gentleness. Man, if there's a word that's appropriate for us today, where most debate or disagreements unfold in a public setting online, which is A terrible place for those conversations anyway. Jesus says all of those conversations should be characterized by gentleness. Now, meekness isn't just for leaders. Jesus desires meekness to characterize every rescued rebel and to be a defining cultural quality of his kingdom. Here's an example. James 1.21 says, "...receive with meekness the implanted word." which is able to save your souls. You know what that means? When Jesus opens his, opens his mouth, we're quiet and we listen and we listen to understand and receive and respond. A lot of us in our youth do not posture ourselves before the word or sermons that way. I'll just use myself as an example. I was not meek as a younger man I'm painfully aware of my meek, meekness deficiencies even now. But as a younger man, I would posture myself before the word to gain knowledge, to win arguments or beat other people down or to prove that I was right. And I would listen critically to sermons to pick, pick them apart and find ways that they were wrong or that it could be better or you just fill in the blank. And if I, if I saw something wrong, I would leave and go somewhere else where I thought it was better. Jesus says to receive with meekness his word, his words. There's more. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, uh, spiritual doesn't mean better. Spiritual means that you're keeping in step with the spirit. You're, just, you're submitting to Jesus. You're living according to the word. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So here's a question. Why have we all heard it said before that the church is the only army which shoots its wounded? That is a tragic reputation in our culture, and it just goes to show us that culturally the church is not known for being meek or gentle. Guys, when meekness defines us, we restore wounded people with a spirit of gentleness. And whenever we're slow with that mercy, we need to rehearse the gospel and be reminded that that's exactly what Jesus did for us and exactly what he does for us every single day little bit more on meekness. Meekness is not a personality type. I don't care what tests you've taken, what letters they've assigned to you, INTJ, ENTP, USAF, USMC, or what spirit animal those tests associate you with like you got a heart of a panda and a body of a koala. Great. It's great. I don't care what your Enneagram type or wing is or are. You are not born with meekness. It's not a temperament, it's not a disposition not like being quiet or shy or introverted. An introvert is not meek by default. That's not meekness to be introverted. Um, An extrovert is not a lost cause for meekness. Type A's don't have to give up on leadership uh, in order to be meek. Meekness actually multiplies leadership potential. Meekness does not belong to one gender more than the other. It's not a repressive idea imposed on Christian women. Like, hmm, how will we keep women in line in this community? I know. Let's talk about this virtue of meekness. That'll do it. It's not that. It's also not an effeminate ideal meant to emasculate Christian men. It doesn't belong to either one of the genders. Meekness on the other hand, is the pathway to the truest expression of the Imago day in your masculinity or your femininity. You want to be the man that God has created you to be? You will be defined by meekness. That's where your masculinity will be seen most clearly. You want to be the woman that God has created you to be? It will be defined by meekness. That is where your femininity will be seen most beautifully and most strongly for what God has created it to be. Meekness is not weakness. Sorry, Google, but meek little husband just does not fit within the true definition, the biblical definition of the word. Meekness is not spinelessness. Meekness is the opposite of aggressive pursuit of self-interest. It is the opposite of aggressive pursuit of self-assertion. And we may not like this, but, but check this out. Meekness is even the opposite of aggressive self-expression. Dave Harvey says it this way. He says, meekness is power harnessed by love. Meekness is power harnessed by love. He says, to be meek is not to be weak or vulnerable, but to be so committed to another person that you will sacrifice for his or her good. That is meekness. Meekness is the opposite of aggressive self-defense of your reputation. Meekness is the refusal to practice retaliation in your relationships. Thomas Aquinas actually said it this way. He said, meekness is a gentleness that restrains us from anger or from expressing our anger easily. Meekness is entrusting everything about my life to Jesus, especially the personal injustices that I face. Now, don't be discouraged. Please keep in mind, meekness is not a natural quality. So if you are feeling deficient, it's not because you were created that way. Our deficiency is attributed to our rebellion and our brokenness. We are all deficient. Don't get me wrong there. But what I'm saying is don't be discouraged. There's hope for every one of us in the room. And here's the reason for our hope. Meekness is something that God forms in us. That's why we have reason for hope. Meekness is something God forms in any one of us, no matter how severely deficient we are in meekness. The Bible calls meekness a fruit of the Spirit. And when we see those words, fruit of the Spirit, in the Bible, that simply means this is something that, this is work that God does on our behalf. Like He cultivates these things. He sows the seeds. He causes the fruit to grow. So the Spirit takes responsibility for us. Galatians 5.23 23 says that the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness or meekness. So when Jesus replaces our rebel hearts of stone, right? He rips them out and He places within us a heart of flesh. Within the heart of flesh are seeds of meekness that will take root and will grow. The Spirit will cause them to grow. So meekness in you is a sign of rescue. It's a sign that Jesus has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness, and it's also a sign of your citizenship in Jesus' kingdom. But we can't just sit back. The New Testament, the Bible does not allow us to sit back and be like, oh, good, it's just work that God does. I'm good then. I'll just wait until he's got it formed in me. No. Jesus calls us to daily clothe ourselves in meekness. So this is meant to be, remember, back to disciple, learner of Jesus, and he said to you, I want you to learn meekness from me. So this is a daily rhythm where we posture ourselves before him. And this is how it goes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, put on then, so he's just saying, stop at the start of your day, you need to get dressed with stuff with, with more than clothes. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So you ask the question, well, I understand how to get dressed physically. Well, most of you understand that. Um, We understand that. Like, how do we clothe ourselves in meekness? So let's not, let's not complicate what should be really simple. We actually see the, the pattern here in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes show us how to clothe ourselves in any kingdom value at the start of every day. Well, let's just rewind three weeks. What's the first kingdom value? I'm poor in spirit. So the way we clothe ourselves daily is just to show up to our heavenly father and say, Dad, here I am again. You know how tragically deficient I am in every area that I'm supposed to be growing in, specifically meekness. I don't have any meekness to put on for myself. Would you please give me today what I don't have? And then you show up the same way tomorrow and the next day, and it's just a lifelong conversation, right? So it starts with poverty in spirit, and it moves to mourning. Father, please show me the ways in which meekness is so deficient in my life. Please show me my blind spots. Please show me how my, meek, deficient, my deficiencies of meekness are impacting and hurting other people and telling lies about you and lies about the gospel. Show me these things and give me a heart that mourns over all of that. And help me to look to Jesus and rely on his spirit. I want to grow in meekness today. That, that, that's all it is. Show up, dad. I don't have it. I need it. Dad, I need help, and Dad, I even need help mourning. Please clothe me in meekness today. That's it. Like, that's how we do it, and looking to Jesus and relying on his spirit. Now, I want to say here, look, there is no perfect church, no perfect Christian. We are all messy we, messy. we are all deficient in this area, but I see meekness in you everywhere. I see Jesus working through your meekness for the good of others and for his fame. I want you to know, family, I am so Not only deeply encouraged by you, I look to you as an example of what it means to clothe yourself in meekness. Keep pressing in that direction. I'm deeply encouraged by you. Guys, what is weak and pitiful according to our culture is wise and powerful according to our king. Let's look at meekness in life. Meekness does not make sense, right? We already know it's countercultural, especially in our context, especially our context. Our culture thinks in terms of power, ability, aggressiveness, assertiveness, and self assurance. So let's consider two real life examples from the scripture first a woman and then a man. I want to point you to Esther. And here's Esther 4.16. Esther was facing certain death along with all of her people. She sets aside self-preservation for the good of others. That's meekness in flesh and blood. And here's Esther 4.16. She says, go gather all of the Jews to be found in Susa, where they lived, and hold a fast on my behalf. A fast is something we do. We, we give up stuff that would consume our time so that we can focus our time on praying, right? That, that's a fast. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat. Don't drink for three days, night or day. We have a lot of praying to do. We have a lot of poverty and spirit to confess. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then, only then, after my poverty of spirit has been expressed, then I will go to the king. Then I will act. Though it is against the law. And it, here, here is, here's what meekness says if I perish, I perish, right? We're entrusting that to Jesus. So that's what meekness looks like in real life setting aside my own well being for the good of others, praying before I act to express my poverty of spirit, and then acting. Like it includes the acting, the obeying, it cares about that. And notice she didn't do any of this in isolation. Meekness anchors all of this in community. If we live in isolation, we're not meek. If we live above, from, above or apart from community, we are not meek. We're meek deficient. That's Esther. Here's Moses. Do you know what the Bible says about Moses in Numbers chapter 12? It says, the man Moses was very meek, more meek than all people who are on the face of the earth. How's that for a reputation? Do you know in that same chapter, Numbers chapter 12, that's where um, uh, Miriam and Aaron actually speak against Moses? Like they slander him. They totally, they're related to him and they totally, they totally slander his leadership in front of his people. Do you know what Moses does? He defends himself vigorously. No, actually he does not defend himself. He doesn't. God judges Miriam and Aaron and then Moses pleads on their behalf. God, please don't judge them so harshly for what they did against me. Guys, that's, weak. that's meekness right there. And if that's meekness, I just like, I saw that passage again this week and I thought, man, I am not meek much. If that's what meekness is and does. Um, and I thought I was a little bit meek and then I read that passage and it just knocked me down a few more. Like, I'm not. How about you? Moses, like Esther, was a great example that meekness is not weakness. Check out the summary of his life. Here's Hebrews 11. Let me just read a few verses, 24 to 27. Remember, he's the meekest man apart from Jesus that ever lived. And here's the summary. Here's his eulogy. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Did meekness lead here's the here's the meekest man. Was there do you see any spinelessness? Do you see him being a pushover? Do you see meek little Moses here? No. What we see is this. In Moses' life, meekness holds on to career, status, and power with an open hand. And the defining question of his life was, where do I serve God best? And it was not in the courts of Pharaoh as a prince. It was in the trenches with the slaves. We also see that meekness chooses to participate in community. Notice it said meekness was with the people of God. Moses was with them for their good, and he was patient. We're talking decades. Meekness led to decades of Moses living in community with imperfect people for their good and for God's fame. Meekness led to Moses suffering on behalf of Christ because suffering on behalf of God is worth more than any salary, any retirement, any comfort, or any promotion. And Moses was actually set free in his lifetime by meekness. How many of us would have the cojones to walk out of Egypt? Did I just say that out loud? (laughs) It's clearly been three and a half months since I've been doing this. How many of us would have the courage to walk out of Egypt away from the king who basically owned his life? Like that was a death sentence for Moses. But Moses was set free from the fear of man. Why? Not because he was courageous. He actually was not. He was meek. And that fear of God, that meekness, set him free from the fear of man. He had no fear of the king. So Moses endured this path of meekness by looking to the reward, the Bible says, as seeing him who is invisible. Guys, if we are to embrace meekness, Meekness lived out in everyday life will be the hard road. It will be the harder road. It will will require self-sacrifice and self-denial daily. Living for Jesus' fame and for the good of others will lead you into conflict with our culture. And it will be far more challenging than living for your own fame and for your own good. But we endure the same way that Moses endured. By looking to the reward, seeing him who is invisible. Like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, the meek are blessed. And then he points, us, our, points our attention forward to this statement, for they will inherit the earth. Well, what does that mean? I want you to see that the blessing is now and the blessing is future, that you will inherit the earth. Here, here's how we're blessed now in meekness. The meek already inherit the earth. And what do I mean by that? I mean a meek person is already satisfied. A meek person is content. Meekness liberates you from the poison of uh, self-fulfillment and consumerism. You have already inherited the earth if meekness defines your life. But it's future too. It will be experienced fully when Jesus returns. But don't get hung up on this idea, wait, Jesus said I would inherit the earth. Like all of us? Like, what does that mean? Like, am I the sole inheritor of the entire earth? Jesus doesn't mean that he's going to put the globe in your hand. It's not yours, and it's not mine to fight over. What he means is this, that your inheritance is incalculable. It's, it's inca- You can't even sit down and do the math on this thing. It dwarfs any sacrifice that you make in this lifetime. And that promise shapes the way that we live now. Paul, Paul, Paul defined it this way. I love this. This is 2nd Corinthians six ten. Paul just says it this way as poor yet making many rich. That's meekness. That is meekness right there. Posturing yourself in life as poor. I don't, I don't need anything. I'm content with Jesus and what he's given me. And I live to make many rich. Not financially, although if you can live for the financial good of other people, that's great. And that is a gospel expression. But there's more to that richness. We're talking about people being made rich spiritually in the gospel through relationship with Jesus. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. Guys, can you imagine a better or more beautiful life? Does the culture really offer you anything superior to that statement right there? What a beautiful life, as poor yet making many rich. If you're going to die and have just a handful of words written about your life, how about that eulogy? That's something worth living for. Yet as having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's beautiful. We need to start... Heading towards uh, our wrap up here. And as we do, I just want to consider this question. What would it look like to put on? I want to consider this question and just a few others. What would it look like to put on meekness in this season when the conversation of race and justice is appropriately center stage in our culture? A pastor, a church planner in our family of churches, Acts 29. This guy's name is uh, Tyler St. Clair. He's a pastor in Detroit, Michigan. He writes for the Gospel Coalition. There's Tyler. Pastor's Cornerstone Church. He wrote this, and if you want to swipe, he, he shared this as a note uh, from his phone. He said, I've had many white pastors seek counsel this week in light... So this is a couple weeks ago. In light of George Floyd's death... Here's how you can help. Now, what he writes down, I believe, is meekness expressed in the life of a church. This is what it looks like to be meek. He says, listen, assume your ignorance, assume your bias, assume lack of cultural understanding, and humbly, humbly listen to people of color. Listen. Uh, I want to say, in order to help us grow in this area of listening, we've assembled a list of resources on the website. Here's a screen grab. And on the drop-down menu, there's a bunch of books under the recommended resources, but I know we don't all have time just to consume a bunch of books. Under mine, additional resources, you'll find everything from some books to some videos, but there are also some podcasts in there uh, that help us just listen to people who have had a different experience than we have. Um, And on my list, if I could recommend just one book, it would be this one. It would be John Perkins, and the title is One Blood. It's like three or four bucks if you get the Kindle version, and it's a short read. You could read it this afternoon if you wanted to, but it's a great starting point to anchor the conversation in the gospel where it belongs, but to help us learn to listen and listen well. All right, St. Clair goes on. He says, listen and lament. Voluntarily enter into the mourning of people of color and show Christ's compassion. Now listen, these next words are really important. Instead of being the fact police or arguing the situation's validity or trying to fix it. Guys, that's meekness expressed. And then he says, lend your voice. As a member of the majority, leverage your influence to empower minorities and speak loud and clearly when injustice happens. Guys, God's family, the church, should be on the leading edge of this with this exact posture right here. We should not be bringing up the rear and we should not be um, that angry voice in the room, characterized by meekness because we are listening, lamenting, and lending our voice. And guys, can I just say this too? Many of you want to have important conversations around these topics, this topic, and you should, we should. We need to have important and challenging conversations about culture and race and public policy and political activism and reform, social reforms and justice and worldviews and gospel centrality. That conversation needs to be had. Meekness looks like having those conversations after And as I listen, lament, and lend my voice, not separate from and not afterwards, meekness looks like having that conversation probably after, but also as we are listening, lamenting, and lending our voice. It also looks like having that conversation in appropriate spaces where good, healthy conversations can be had. And it looks like having those conversations with a gentle posture, with meekness. Guys, I know many, many, many Christians who care deeply about racial justice and the gospel. I know a ton of them who are motivated simply by Jesus' fame, the love of neighbor, and Jesus' counterculture kingdom values. I, can I just be honest? I don't know any, I, I just personally don't know any Christian who cares about race and justice who is being motivated by cultural Marxism or critical race theory. I just personally don't know any. This is a personal, conf- I don't. So let's be gentle in those conversations. Let's, let's have them, but let's not be people who are like, man, guys, the sky is falling because of cultural Marxism or CRT, like the church is going to be wrecked. Let's have that conversation because there is a risk, but let's just be honest. Uh, cultural Marxism is probably not the most threatening ism in the life of the church, in fact, if we're going to have the conversation, let's just be honest and talk about some of the isms that have proven far more fatal already, like capitalism, consumerism, republicanism, liberalism, conservatism, libertinar- libert I can't say it, libertarianism, and that's me, and I couldn't even say it, Trumpism, uh, make America greatism. In fact, I would suppose I would propose a different MAGA. How about we start? Here's meekness. We make the gospel great again for myself, in your own heart. How about that one? And then after we've done that, let's make the gospel central again in the life of our churches, but that does not precede centrality in our own hearts. We could start there. Uh, Nationalism is another ism. There's lots of them. So let's just keep cultural Marxism and CRT in perspective, right, in a long line of other isms. And let's be meek and gentle in those conversations. If you have questions about any of that, I would love to sit down and talk with you and talk about gospel centrality and where these things belong. But better than me, I would actually encourage you, Kyle, are you in the room? Kyle Kleekamp is, there he is. Okay, Kyle's one of our pastors. And he, over the last couple of weeks, has been doing the hard work of thinking carefully about the importance of gospel centrality and uh, CRT and cultural Marxism and all of those things. He, 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 he thinks well and speaks well about these things. So um, go see Kyle uh, first and have that conversation with him. All right, guys, we really do need to wrap it now. Moses was a really good leader. He was a great man. His meekness endeared him to his people. The Bible says that when he died, the people of Israel wept for 30 days on behalf of Moses. You and I are going to have funerals where people weep for 30 minutes and then go eat at a buffet. Moses' people wept for 30 days. But, guys, Moses still needed a savior. He's not the hero in the Bible. Moses' people needed someone better. He was the meekest man, but that was not enough. His rebellion kept him from from his ultimate rest and he died short of the promised land. Moses needed a savior and his people needed a savior better than Moses. And guys, Jesus is that savior. Jesus was and is meekness in our place. Jesus was perfectly meek and we see that through his perfect obedience to the father, perfectly obeying on our behalf. Jesus took the judgment for Moses' failure and my failures and your failures in our place. Every moment not marked by meekness in my life, Jesus was judged for. Through his substitutionary life and his substitutionary death on our behalf, Jesus was meekness personified. And so in our rescue from rebellion and rest for our souls, that is Found in Christ and his performance, not in our performance or our attempts at being meek. Let's not get it backwards. Jesus is better than Moses, and that's good news because you and I are just like Moses. He needed rescue, and we need rescue. What is weak and pitiful according to our culture is wise and powerful according to our King. Let's just pray together and ask Jesus to cultivate that in us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending Jesus in our place because we are not meek. And even in our growth now, we are so deficient in our meekness. But Jesus, you were perfectly meek in our place. You satisfied the wrath of the Father against our rebellion through your obedience and through your substitutionary death. And in your resurrection, you give us new life and new hearts. And Father, we just ask now that you would cultivate meekness in our hearts here, and in the life and culture of our church family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.